When my colleague and dear friend Anya Kerr left Facebook to co-found her second startup, she left a note on my desk that read simply, the future begins at the edge of your comfort zone. Anya grew up in the border zone, Monaghan County, Ireland, just shy of the troubles and just prior to the Celtic Tiger. She began her career as a grammar school teacher and executed a long and well-planned pivot into journalism. Anya covered education for all three of Ireland's major dailies before partnering with Irish nightly news anchor and entrepreneur Mark Little to build social media news agency Storyful, which was later acquired by News Corp. In 2016, Anya joined Facebook. That summer, she and I began developing the department's first global news programs. We barnstormed through London, Paris, Berlin, Copenhagen, and Madrid, leading product sessions and showcasing our partners' best practices alongside dozens of our awesome colleagues. Prior to the time, I could pilot a used car back and forth across America's highways, but outside of the Caribbean, I traveled so little, barely to Europe as a teenager. I had very little experience navigating international flights, passports, customs, cultures, and languages. By the time COVID locked down global travel and in-person convenings, I'd run programs in Athens, Amsterdam, Brussels, Dublin, Hong Kong, Sydney, Singapore, Taipei, Jakarta, Manila, Kuala Lumpur, Delhi, Hyderabad, and all across the United States. I was scheduled to spend each quarter of 2020 leading executive programs in all four regions of Facebook's world, Europe, Asia, North and South America, but then kablooey. As we raced across Europe that fall, I found myself constantly haranguing Kerr, I call her by her surname, to join the team for happy hours and meals and morning runs, but she couldn't be dragged from her room or moreover from her laptop. I remember heading to Tegel Airport in one gray morning, motor mouthing as we passed the Berlin Wall and the Reichstag, Kerr was heads down banging away on an email, mumbling, sorry, sorry, just one more thing. Anya is super smart, hyper-focused, and nearly unflappable. Except that one time in Madrid, when the taxi driver tried to drop us at a dusty, windswept, and barbed wire National Guard base, not the actual international airport. Kerr, surely one flat white short of fully caffeinated, turned ashen and moot as I flex my high school Spanish skills. Llegamos a la puerta muy bien. De hecho, tenía dos vestidos de la Valle Flamenco Rojo Brillante. Anya left Facebook just two years later to co-found Kinzen, a startup at the leading edge of the battle against misinformation. Once again, with Mr. Mark Little, whose stories, enthusiasm, and companionship, by the way, are worth as much Guinness as you can afford, as late as you can stay awake at Newsgeist in Lisbon. Anya also became a Punch Sulzberger Fellow at Columbia University Journalism School and a mother. Kinzen has grown 10x since, and Anya's daughter, Anna, is pushing two, which is roughly the age where we join in that conversation about growing up in Connie Monaghan in Ireland's border region. So Ireland, we have 32 counties, six counties to the north of Ireland, a remainder then to the Republic. And Cantamonaghan is in a very interesting place. We're just underneath the Northern Irish border. So where I grew up, if you think of the trouble, some of the mm -hmm. visuals people will be familiar with of the conflicts there with IRA and tensions between two communities. Um, that was always like 10 minutes away from where I lived, but on the other side of that. That was very much always kind of to the background. 
you know, radio was a constant force in our house or she radio one was constantly on that, you know, it was very much part of your, your childhood upbringing in, in understanding the tensions and the role of politics within that very much rural part of the world went to the local national school. I think there were 43 people in my class and in primary school in Ireland, uh, you go there for what, like eight years. And that was absolutely foundational, I would say, to still who I am today. And in a place like County Monaghan, you play GEA, GA, as we say here, which is our own national sport. And I always feel sorry for kids who aren't into sports if you're from County Monaghan, because we, number one, talk about the weather a lot. And number two topic of conversation is Monaghan GA, Monaghan football. And it is the hardship of my life from a very early age. We like to think we're very good at it, but we've never been to an All-Ireland final. But also I often think about my teachers. I have one teacher, Mrs. Daly, in fifth class and sixth class. So in the Irish system, that's when you're 11 and 12. And it's such a critical time for young girls. Like all of the research shows that this tends to be the moment where confidence dips. We're starting to think about our identity, our perception, how we're received in the world. And Mrs. Daly, for me, that transition between 11 and being a 12 year old to this day is absolutely critical and momentous in how I approach the world. I follow you on all kinds of social media. So I see you in all these matching outfits and now I get it. I love the competitive nature of it. I love inching ever closer to that day where we might win an All-Ireland <laughs> Trophy. That is really important to me, given that we are the fourth smallest county in Ireland. So we have a real, you know, punching above our weight. But it's so much bigger than that, because GA for me, has been the great commonality in our family. And I'm talking mm -hmm. uncles, aunts, cousins, yeah. neighbours, and extended family. It gives you this commonality, it gives you this passion subject that sense of community sense of belonging to something that yeah it there, there is a, a sense of purpose and mission to it but it is that sense of this is what binds us as a family and it transcends the things that separate us right like we can yeah. we may we may disagree about who the prime minister is but i'll bet we can agree that we're going to back the local team <laughs> yeah it's not without its debate i would say about <laughs> managers tactics and sure but for the most part, you will put on the jersey and come what may, we will always have money on football. You will always have your team that you will support and that blue and white and all the debate and heartache that comes from it. But you're so right in this massive moment of a global pandemic, a once in a century lifetime event where everybody's going through all of these emotions and complex moments that you will still have the things that you can gravitate back towards and debate and discuss as if the world without isn't beyond our control. There's something about the controllable that we can influence while we have to accept some of the things beyond mm -hmm. our control right now. One of the things Mr. Rogers would encourage people to do, and, and I think you know about mm -hmm. him mostly from yeah. your friendship with me, right? Yeah. He would ask, in essence, people to think about, reflect on who loved them into being. And it mm -hmm. sounds like a really important catalyst or mentor for you was mm -hmm. this teacher it's such a lovely question like I obviously think of my family particularly my aunts then your community your footballing community but with Mrs Daly I 
at 11 years, fifth class, I was not a fan of like long division, long multiplication. Here in Ireland, you have to learn Gaelica, which is our national language. And it is a complex language to pick up. I hated a lot of those things. I definitely had a crisis of confidence. I was the kid who would bend down to tie her shoelaces rather than, you know, be asked the question. I get easily embarrassed. I might know the poem forwards and backwards and inside out and if you asked me in that moment I would freeze and I think we've all been there as kids but with Mrs Daly there was definitely a discipline in you know learning staying curious asking the questions and just having a discipline of staying with it like build resilience and learn what endurance is and that feeling of failure <laughs> as an 11 year old but ingraining that in me, in the Irish primary school system, there's always things that you have to do for public school debate. And I don't know whether there's like a magic hat, but my name used to always come out for, you know, prayers in the local church, MC this event in school. But rather than a magic hat, there was a public school competition, a debate competition. I got to the final and I can still remember rehearsing on my little pink cards. And my debate was why women are just as good as men at football. And I remember getting to the final and I was up against a guy, Rory Lonergan. I still remember it to this day. And I lost to Rory. And I remember in that moment being devastated, but also being like, seriously, I'm here. You know, feminist fighting yeah. the good fight. At the time, boys played on one pitch and the girls were like, well, you take the yard over here. And I remember there was this kind of like perfect storm of, getting to the debate final and having a passionate subject I really cared about and articulating it. And at the same time, the girls had said, screw that, we're taking over the pitch with the boys and we're going to play with the boys. And there was kind of that perfect storm then of the long multiplication, long division. Um, I was a big reader at the time. I worked on the farm. There's a real work ethic. And by the time I came into sixth class and being 12 years of age, suddenly everything started to sink. And I remember at the end of sixth class of two years of Mrs. Daly, going off to Irish school for two weeks. Uh, we call it the Gwail Talk here in Ireland. I remember consciously going, I have spent a year afraid to pop up my hand, you know, dipping down, tying the shoelaces when being asked the question. And I remember suddenly then going to the Gwail Talk in sixth class and realizing I know all of the answers. I now need to be careful about how many times I put my hand up. I don't want to be that kid in that yeah. class. And at the end of the Gwail Talk, they had a scholarship for the best performing student uh, of the summer to go on to a girl talk the next summer. And my name was called out three times before I recognized, oh my God, that's me. I am the kid who's just gotten a scholarship. So there was something in the hard lessons, the grafting and realizing, you know, I might not then have been the most competent, smartest kid, but I had a lot of the right bits when sewn together and I suspect had some bearing on your major at St. Patrick's College from 1999 to 2002. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> at this point, you're getting closer to Dublin, right? I remember at age 15, taking a piece of paper and drawing down a line through the middle. And on one side was head, on the other side was heart. And head was be a teacher and heart was be a journalist. And I really grappled. And you're 15 and you have to pick your subjects, which is going to dictate your college choices. I'm really feeling this is a binary choice. Our parents' generation, they started here and they go up a career ladder and that's your life. And well, do I have to pick one or the other? Can you do both? And I was always really grateful. I had an uncle in journalism who gave me sound advice, which was if you have curiosity about both, 
do teaching first, you'll have a holistic degree from sociology to psychology and everything in between. You will have a life experience then of dealing with teachers, um, dealing with children, parents, and you'll have a specialism in education that will carry you into journalism. And it was such an important moment to realize actually life isn't about binary choices. Mm. At age 17, it's like, right, I'm off. I'm renting in Dublin. And so the adventure begins. But my father would always say I was always itching and raring to go. Um, and that country life was not going to be for me. And he was oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have a, a run at three major Irish publications, right? The Times, Examiner, and the mm-hmm. Independent. What were your sort of takeaways as you clearly made a conscious decision to do something very different but related yeah. at the end of that run. Did the three years in St. Patrick's College qualified as a teacher, did two years in a permanent pensionable job about 10 minutes from where I'm sitting now in an amazing girls' school besides St. Patrick's College. I didn't go very far. And I was teaching 11-year-old girls. And that was actually really important for me, given my whole, yeah, that age, that exact age. But I think I always knew I wanted to get to journalism. So even after school, those two years, I would get my bike, cycle up to the Northside People newspaper. It's a local community newspaper here in Dublin. And that's where I learned my vocation, my craft of community from the ground up. And, you know, all politics being local, people really seeing their identity represented to them through the power of journalism. And it could be everything from renaming a street to potholes, to the lights aren't working here, to then obviously yeah. drugs issues and fundamental issues and seeing the critical role of journalism in these communities. And so I knew after two years out teaching and doing part-time journalism, time to make a leap, push beyond the familiar zone, get back to that page at 15 years of, right, how do I do both? And at the end of it, I got poached by the Irish Times, the paper of record, like the New York Times yeah. equivalent yeah. here in Ireland. And education was my specialism. And suddenly now you're a news reporter, but your beat is education. And realizing in those moments, this is kind of always meant to be. And my my uncle was right. If I didn't have that life experience and that specialism of education, journalism at the start would have been very broad for me. But also I realized as well in a no regrets that had I gone straight into journalism, I think I would have lacked a little bit of the street smart. Teaching Mm -hmm. definitely gave me that grounding that I needed. And one of the things that binds all of those experiences, all different, largely inside the Irish Parliament, which we call the Dáil here. And in that time, I saw Ireland go from boom. And you will remember, you know, Ireland was one of the fastest growing economies in the world uh, in the 2000s. And then you come into 2008 and suddenly we're into recession here. So boom to bust and having to be the person tracking that. And I remember often feeling as a political correspondent, those three years in the Irish independent of near the first draft of history and being the person who had to soak it in from parliamentarians, politicians, policymakers, soak it in, make sense of it, process it, and then wring it back out in a way that would make sense for the public. That definitely absorbed me it definitely drained me I can recognize that now and after seven years of being a newspaper journalist give it all up to go and start into a startup with 10 other people where we were just kind of making it up as we went along (laughs) yeah I'm sure there's a a great origin story somewhere to be found but because it's a pretty legendary group of people what was the catalyst for you to just go ahead and jump ship to something that yeah at the time must have looked a little unknown completely 
I do remember I was really fortunate to go to the United States. The then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had the scholarship and it was about promoting harmony and peace between Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, journalists here and abroad. And I was one of 14 journalists that had the opportunity to go to the United States for two weeks and got to go to Boston College, was in the Boston Globe, Marty Barron, got to meet him, the then editor, went to New York. We were inside ProPublica. We were down in New York uh, University, Jay Rosen. And I remember Jay Rosen blew my mind that day because he effectively was like, so the history of producing news is we get the story, we launch it out into the world, we supply it. And we don't ever really think about how the public is involved in our journalism. We get a story and we just serve it out. And what would it look like if you were kind of doing it in the reverse, you know, constantly thinking about public service journalism, but what also if you were always publishing in real time, you know, in the moment when it is a story as opposed to waiting 24 hours sometimes to put it into the newspaper. And I remember coming coming out of that going, we're doing it in the wrong order. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple of hours later, we were in a diner and out of the corner of my eye on Times Square, I could see the ticker up on Times Square saying, the IMF has arrived in Ireland, which is a huge moment in our country's history. I'll have to get my, my timelines right, but we're talking 2008, 2009. I remember going out onto Times Square and the other 13 were there straight onto Twitter, which is still in some ways quite new, but joining the conversation. And at the time I had been advised by my editors, don't tweet anything that could compromise tomorrow's newspaper. Mm-hmm that is going to take away from our coverage. This is a huge momentous moment. Our country is about to be bailed out. This is historic. The IMF has been called in. We're into a whole new trajectory. And the conversation is happening on Twitter and I can't be a part of that community. And realizing, yeah, what Jay Rosen is saying there about demand and supply and public service journalism, we're doing it wrong. And got on a flight home. And whether it was in the airport or on the other side, I emailed Mark Little, who I'd never met. Mark Little was basically the face, as as far as I was concerned, of current affairs, Irish journalism. He was co-host of Primetime here in Ireland. It's kind of the flagship news current affairs program. He had been the Washington, D.C. correspondent, would have been one of the best known journalists in the country and huge respect for him. Never met him, sent him an email going, been a journalist for seven years. I'm ready for something totally different that thinks about this relationship in a different way and sustainable journalism and doing something a little bit different. I saw you on The Late Late Show, which is Ireland's biggest TV show. Don't quite understand what Storyful is. I just know I want to be a part of it. And weeks later, met him for a coffee. It probably took six months from that first email to actually joining Storyful. And in Storyful's case, it was the first social media news agency bringing content from the margins to the mainstream verification of social media content like this is now just second nature to journalists but then back in 2010 this is a whole new phenomenon but just being so drawn by mark's sense of mission of what would it look like if mm-hmm. you could have a social media agency that is the signal in the noise of everything happening on youtube on twitter on facebook and all the platforms yet to come and we could be the ones to make sense of it and I was drawn to that. Didn't understand it at the time and all the unknowns, but absolutely from the get-go buying into that sense of mission. Having just spent a couple of hours with Mark, I can see also how if I had coffee with him and he was talking about an idea <laughs> he was excited about, yeah. I can just imagine being like, sign me up. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. Just put, so, 
Yeah. How did Storyful unfold for you? And then what made you know it was time to leave? Such a critical five years for me. That first startup experience, that was second family to me of just uh, being surrounded by super smart people, lots of journalists, technologists, and that merger where you'd worked in traditional newsrooms where the business side of the house was separate to the technology, the technology separate to editorial. Whereas in Storyful, you were trying to bring break down walls and bring everybody together in a very collaborative unit of how do we build technology that is going to help us find that signal in the noise, whether it's protests on the streets of Cairo or before a really funny video of a a kid with chocolate all over his face, denying that he's eaten the chocolate before it goes viral. Like, how do you just find these moments in time that people have uploaded onto their video? And it was an amazing experience of building technology to help you find these things in real time and then building a human layer on top of it like old-fashioned journalism then people looking at it and going is it real is it trustworthy the who what where when how why the source the location the date and trying to become the gold standard when it came to social media and this is back like 2011 and I remember even at the beginnings like we talk a lot about misinformation disinformation particularly since 2016 but in 2010 2011 of Storyful we had a daily debunk Like that was the real beginnings where you could see platforms being manipulated. So as much as we were there to verify the beginnings of the Arab Spring and bring that to your ABCs, your New York Times and and your Al Jazeera's of the world that they could trust. Okay, we can't get our satellite band there. We can't get our journalists on the ground, but activists on the ground are recording. How do we know what to trust? And we were the broker because we were talking to the eyewitnesses, verifying it. And you were talking like digital footprint analysis, like, you know, high end rigorous verification. And sometimes it would take days to verify content, but to give a New York Times the confidence to use it that, yeah, this is trustworthy. This is going to help us tell the story that our journalists on the ground cannot. And so an amazing experience of seeing the power of technology, but still seeing the power of the human journalist layered on top of that to bring, as I say, content from the margins to the mainstream. And after three years in Storyful, we got acquired by News Corporation, uh, Rupert Murdoch, and so began like stepping up to another level. I was made managing editor on the acquisition. And suddenly you're, you're managing a team of 30 people. We grew quite quickly to over 100 people. And those two years under the mothership of News Corporation was a great experience. You know, I got a coach for the first time. You know, there was professional growth and personal growth, but also it was much easier just to open doors and talk to the right people. Like one minute you're a scrappy startup in Dublin, Ireland, started at the height of the recession at the beginnings of the Arab Spring. And I hadn't honestly applied to a single job. I wasn't at this point looking at jobs. I just knew it's probably getting time to leave. And Mark had left for Twitter. And that was probably an important moment as well. You know, you've been on this journey with someone who had sold you this vision of the future. And part of my job had been, well, how do we get there? You know, as often is my job. And um, for Mark to leave, that was definitely key in my thinking. And he sent me this job advertisement, which was manager of journalism partnerships based down in New York. I was like, okay, if ever there was a job that I'll apply for and I consider leaving Storyful for, it's that. Yeah. That's the challenge. That's the thing. So for about two years, <laughs> we worked together at Facebook, right? And yeah. I saw you just go, 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 mm. go. 
mm-hmm. including living basically in Dublin and New York City. Everything was built for efficiency. You made me buy a new rolly bag. Like think about how I dress on planes different because you just had it down. How did you manage that degree of just relentless pace? I think I've always been comfortable with the why I do something. And I think if you can reconnect with your sense of why, it makes the hows a little bit easier and the trade-offs and how do I replenish my energy. And I often think about that matrix, maybe even since more since I've left Facebook, left Facebook and, and the pace of life has maybe slowed a little bit, which is absolutely understanding what gives you fulfillment. Because if you tap into that, that's where your energy will come from. And I remember always thinking in Facebook, okay, if I'm playing to my strengths, living my values and having a sense of impact and being building meaningful connections well then i'll constantly be striking a match and lighting that sense of the inner fire and i think with facebook i was prepared to run really hard for almost two years because i felt a real sense of urgency to be honest at the state of journalism and and i always knew look you couldn't sustain that for years and years on end but a real sense of why me? Why this? Why now? Well, why not me? And why not this? And why not now? And feeling journalism is in crisis. Facebook has a huge audience. It has a role to play. It can be a positive force for good. And I can be the force for good within Facebook. And I felt a real sense of duty, I think, to the industry I love, to Facebook that I always believed had good values and a sense of mission and I could try and kind of broker between the two. I remember talking to you and I don't remember where you were in the world, but I remember FaceTiming you from Taipei, Taiwan. I was on Elephant Hill and the sun was rising. And I think I realized that wherever you were, you might've been on Australia. I don't know. I just remember thinking, <laughs> I just need to check in with her. I definitely needed a Benjamin in my life and still do, you know, that reminder of why we care and why we do what we do. And that sometimes the answers to the why me, why this, why now, well, why not me? Like, you know, the, the why is such an important one for all of us, but then the importance of catching a breath. Because I think if I didn't have a Benjamin right then sending me a mindful video, I think I'm always that person in danger of just constantly running and not pausing enough. You basically start to huge undertakings nearly simultaneously, which is mm-hmm. you become pregnant to become a mother and uh, you know, you're on your route to become a mother and you're, you're, you're launching a startup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you give me some sense, like which happened first and, and to what degree yeah. did you think, oh, these at the same time might not be great? So like you did Salzburger Fellowship in Columbia University. And I think before I left for Australia, I'm thinking June, July, and was going to Australia in August for that uh, Senate inquiry and sitting on a bench outside Columbia University with Karen, redoing my Myers-Briggs and really just trying to understand my own why and sense of purpose and mission. So I definitely was into that reflective mode and know thyself. I said, what would it be like if you could do a second startup or as my family and friends like to call it the difficult second album um, (laughs) which would mean (laughs) that you could start again and really think about those questions of trust and what would it look like if you could rebuild that connection between people and, and quality news and information and you know that's where New York had been brilliant for me was kind of looking at the history of media and really thinking about We've had these moments where everybody's become a publisher now because we have smartphones. The modes of distribution are so fragmented, but for good as well, because we now 
better understand so much about the world that was closed off to us. And the means of consumption have changed. It's no longer these routines of news where you turn on the six o'clock news in the morning and you had these appointed viewing times with TV and radio. It's just constant. And realizing in that summer, and we're talking summer of 2017, the election has happened. My life had become about false news and how do you mitigate the bad and amplify the good? And really thinking about, is there a moment of correction here? And going to Australia for Facebook and discovering in Australia I was pregnant. And coming back and and really reckoning with, it is crazy to think of starting a family and start a company at the same time. Yes, you can have a real sense of mission and purpose, and that's so important. But you have to be comfortable with ambiguity. You have to be really comfortable with the sense of absolute unknown. And as Jeff Bezos says, you know, be stubborn on your sense of vision and mission, but flexible about how you get there. Mm. And you'll see a book here behind me, The Messy Middle. I'm so grateful I read that early into my second startup, which is all about that endurance of like people have an assumption that startup life is going to be this beautiful hockey stick growth. When in fact, it's this jiggity jiggity, you know, the what the F moments and the, oh my God, amazing. But the trick is more in the the Zen, like the no drama, that's my role (laughs) in Kinson of just endure the lows, optimize the highs and and find your way through. Anya, as I hear you describe ultimately how you think about startup life, you sound like you're describing life, right? One of the things I've come to is this idea that I think I, and this could be Americans or it could be Mm. people, have this sense that we will have success and it will plateau, or to your point, it will be a hockey stick, but Mm. it tends to be a roller coaster where the the waves or the arcs or the hills Mm. get bigger and steeper and scarier, but your competency for managing all that stuff increases, Mm. hopefully. And yeah. as a leader in that dynamic, I think the best thing you can do is, as as you just visualized so beautifully, mm. is try and manage the lows mm. and um, the highs, but kind of be a steady yeah. presence, which is like yeah. good. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. what I need to do for my own head, right? And I think in all of that, it is just that simple philosophy of the only constant is change. Mm-hmm. You know, like stay curious, ask the questions. Yeah plan to work and work to the plan but and that's one of the great Facebook teachings is don't ever just have a plan A like have a plan B and I can honestly say doing a second startup I live also in the plan C D E F and beyond of pushing myself sometimes to absolutely go what is the absolute worst case scenario and you really have to do that in startup land where yeah you got up every day and you go right what's within my control what what can I influence what do I have to accept and sometimes you realize what is not within my control is whether that VC is going to say yes to an investment in us. What can I influence? I'm going to go and get 10 other VCs and see, can they be persuaded? And so you have to have that flexibility, always be learning, be curious, but embrace the change, embrace the unknown, embrace the ambiguity. Let me move forward into this, which is suddenly, Anya... <laughs> You're a broadcaster. Tell me how this RT reignite came to yeah. be, and mm-hmm. you came to be host of the number six podcast. Oh my goodness, so many learnings. Even from that moment, you get off the bench outside Columbia uh, University and starting to embrace the contradictions. I am an introvert, and I probably 
found that hard at times when you've been the MC and you've traveled the world onto those stages. Like, how am I living an extrovert's life as an introvert? And probably what I've had to learn over the years is it's less about the, the showmanship and more what gives you energy and what takes right. energy. My sense of impact has changed as well. I have a daughter. I think all the time about how am I going to empower the next generation of female leaders coming behind, given all of the imbalances and inequalities we have in the world. And what is my role going to be in that? And so I coach mentor women a lot. The broadcasting piece, I've realized that as much as I've spent a lot of my life on the side of the microphone where I have to answer the questions, I love being on the other side of the mm. microphone, asking powerful questions, managing the process that gets great content and great stories from other people. I love that. And I read a book last year. It's called Plain Big by Tara Moore. And it's all about your inner critic. And it's all about how women in particular tend to do the this, that, then. I'd had the opportunity out of nowhere, RCE, Ireland, state broadcaster, had contacted me and said, look, uh, the host of the business, uh, sixth biggest radio show in the country, would you stand in the Saturday? And I was like, oh my God, I've never thought of being on that side of the microphone. Hell yeah, sign me up. And I had people from Tara Moore to Ariana Huffington, David Allen, you know, like just brilliant minds teaching people of, right, well, here's Here's the how, if you know your why. And I can honestly say nothing I feel I've ever done has had the impact that has had. Like I still get messages uh -huh. from people around the country going, that was five weeks of hope, of just an energy transfusion that they needed in that moment of a global pandemic. That's great. I want to make sure I'm constantly the person that's passing the baton behind me to those coming. Fred Rogers said that as human beings, it's our job in life to help people realize how rare and valuable each one of us really is. That each one of us is something that no one else ever has or ever will, something inside that is unique to all time. It's our job, he says, to encourage each other, to discover that uniqueness and provide ways of developing its expression. Anya moves fast. She thinks fast and acts fast. I spent more than one meeting asking her to explain her whiteboard and more than one morning lagging behind her through the airport. Anya has it together. The athleisure and the trainers, the neck pillow tucked into the roller bag, the swell water bottle, all in black, of course. Facebook is known for its motto, move fast and break things, a marked improvement. From the similarly intended but slightly more punk rock phrase I left my MTV News colleagues with in 2014, keep fucking shit up in a good way. The point, of course, Either way is to stay hungry, stay curious, stay agile and nimble to disrupt yourself before you're disrupted. For nearly five years now, Anya and I have kept a semi-regular transatlantic phone call. I love hearing how much she loves what she's doing, how committed and clear she is about her work and her purpose. As Fred once said, it seems to have very little to do with worldly success. She just loves what she's doing and loves it in front of others. Still, I like to encourage Anya to take in the scenery, to relish those quiet moments in the midst of life, as Fred called them, that seem to give the rest meaning. For her part, Anya helps me to feel seen, unique, and understood. Our conversations help the edge of my comfort zone feel just a little bit safer. And isn't that what friends and neighbors are really for?
Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what we're doing here, please, for heaven's sakes, rate, comment, and share Friends and Neighbors with your friends and neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.